Let's pray tonight. Father, we just thank you for this book of Revelation. Lord, this revelation, these things we would not know if you had not revealed them to the Apostle John. Thank you for the apocalypsis, the revelation, the revealing, the unfolding. And Lord, we pray that tonight you would open our eyes and ears to see what the Lord is saying to the church. And I pray that above all, this message, this teaching will motivate us to get out and witness to people about Jesus because of the times that are coming. And thank you for it. And can you breathe a prayer, dear church, and say, Lord, I receive your word tonight. Speak to my heart in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and tell him, perk up and listen. This is going to be good tonight. If you've got your book, wave it. If you brought your book, wave it. All right, it's good to see all those books. Amen. <laughs> I see it, Don. What you got there, Don? Is that the book? Oh, you've got it. You did it by, you downloaded it. Okay. Oh, you got both. Okay. That's good. Amen. All right. Now, we are, this is our fifth session, and we're making great time because, uh, this is the fifth time we've met, and we're already starting chapter 9 tonight in, in Revelation, not in your book. Uh, and I know that gets confusing, and I'm going to clarify tonight when, which is which. So let's, uh, let's begin. We left off last time with the last of the seven seals being broken by the Lord Jesus. Who is releasing these judgments upon the earth? Say it to me. Jesus, Jesus is. Uh, the Lamb of God. And it's hard for us to imagine that. It's hard for us to picture that. But this is Jesus. He was the only one who could open the seals. And the seal judgments have left one quarter of mankind wiped out. Inconceivable, but true. Let me just recap a little bit. The first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we saw them ride. And first one was the white horse. The white horse pictured Antichrist appearing to be righteous, but not so. He rides in like a hero onto the world scene, but he is not Christ. He is not an answer. He is a curse. He is a vexation. He's a snare, and he's a trap, but he rides the white horse. Then behind the white horse came the red horse, that, and that is the horse of war, the red horse of war, the war of bloodshed. The red horse of war. Following the red horse, the black horse. And the black horse is the horse of worldwide famine following on the heels of war. Only makes sense that after a terrible war, food would be scarce. And so now here comes the black horse. So here's the white one, the red one, the black one. And finally, the pale horse is the horse of plague. Chloros is the Greek word. It's... Uh, we get um, cholera from that word. So you've got a great deception, the Antichrist, followed by war, followed by famine, followed by plague. Now, isn't it interesting that the world experiencing this, they're not seeing horses up there riding. They're going to be going, what in the world is happening on our planet? And they're going to be confused and perplexed, but not those who know the Word of God. We know because we've been given a behind-the-scenes, a behind-the-veil, bird's-eye view of what's happening 
in the spiritual world that causes these things in the natural world to take place. You know, how many times does something happen in the spiritual arena that causes something in the natural to take place? And the Revelation is a great example because most of the world will not see the things we're talking about right now. They won't be aware of it. They'll just think, wow, all hell has broken loose and we don't know why. (laughs) Now the next two seals, that's the first four. The next two involve a view of the martyrs of Jesus under an altar and then a terrifying set of natural disasters, including cosmic chaos. Jesus said there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. And we saw last week how the, 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 the meteorites or something will fall from heaven in mass and will pummel the earth in great numbers. And then there was the seventh seal involved another look at the martyrs of the Lamb, followed by the release of God's retributive judgment that manifests, John said, in thunderings and lightnings and an awesome earthquake. And earthquakes are a huge part of what happens in the book of Revelation. God uses earthquakes to send His judgment. So now, let's go to the trumpet judgments. That's the seven seals. And in your book, we're on page 50. And let's look at the trumpet judgments. There are going to be seven of them. It says in chapter 8, verse 6, Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. Now remember, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There will be 21 judgments cascading down upon the earth in rapid succession in a seven-year time period. And now we're right in the middle, the trumpets. Trumpets in Bible times signal a time of solemnity or celebration, either or. Trumpets were associated with war, with assembling and marching, with festivals, with introduction of royalty, with the power of God, with the overthrow of the ungodly, and praise God with the coming of Christ. The Bible says the trumpet shall blow and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Amen? So trumpets play a huge part in the book of Revelation, as we're about to see. Now, these seven angels that the Bible mentions, the seven angels of the seven trumpets, seven angels holding seven trumpets, they stand in the presence of God. These angels, whose responsibility is to sound the trumpets, appear to occupy a high and heavenly position. These are major angels. And you do know that angels really are on a hierarchical scale in heaven. There's archangels, there's cherubims and seraphims, and I guess regular angels. But now, it's likely that the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, are in their number. Because these seven angels with seven trumpets are about to release seven massive judgments upon the earth. So we see here again, the book of Revelation, angels integrally involved in what God is doing in the the last days, in the end times. And as we have seen so many things happening in sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven angels, uh, you know, Jesus with the seven eyes, all these multiples of sevens, we're about to see God's judgments 
switching and manifesting in thirds instead of sevens. So let's look at the first trumpet. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. I'm going to read that again because I think it's slipping right past us. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned. And all the green grass was burned. Do you know the scale that is talking about here? Can you imagine the massive scale of judgment this is talking about here? The size, the scope, the enormity of this? Apparently, there's going to be firestorms of incredible magnitude at the sounding of the first trumpet. John could certainly be describing a nuclear blast. And, and i got to tell you, when I read some of these descriptions we're going to be looking at tonight, it's so hard for me to disassociate what we read from a nuclear blast because it's just like what one would do. Now, I'm not saying definitively that's what it is, but it's very, very interesting. Now, let's look. A stunning one-third of the ground and trees are burned and all the green grass destroyed. That's got to be including entire continents, a third of the earth. How big is that? This is the beginning of the end of earth's ecology as we have known it. And I got to tell you, for me, because I love God's creation, I grew up loving God's creation. A little bit, as a little bitty boy, six, seven, eight years old, I used to take encyclopedias with me and go to the woods and open them up and learn the, the birds and the animals and the, the reptiles and everything that was there. I, even being lost, I loved what God had made. And now that I'm saved, I got to tell you, I see the Lord everywhere I look. Now, he's not a tree, like a pantheist would say, but he created the tree. And, and, and his creation is magnificent, and it's heartbreaking for me to read these things. And I know it is to you, too. But that's what happens with the first trumpet. A third of the ground and the trees are burned. All the green grass on earth destroyed. And then comes the second trumpet. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. Now, here comes the thirds again. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Again, this sounds like a nuclear blast taking place at sea. And you've got to wonder. Our oceans are filled with submarines and ships armed with nuclear weaponry. You know, when, when scholars, Bible scholars and Bible students used to read this 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they could not figure this out. How in the world is this going to happen? It's going to have to be like, like when God rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it might be that. But what used to perplex Bible students is not hard for us to imagine in the 21st century. Today, six countries deploy some form of nuclear-powered strategic submarines. Here they are, United States, Russia, France, United Kingdom, China, and India. All of them have nuclear subs. All nuclear submarines carry anywhere from 100 kiloton, that's KT, 100 kiloton to 475 
kiloton warheads. Now, let me give you an idea of what that means if one were to go off. And I'm sharing this with you because I can, I can relate this to what I'm seeing in the Revelation. Let's say that a 475 kiloton explosion were to take place in Washington, D.C. Ground zero being directly on the dome of the Capitol building. Let's say it hit right there. The zone of total destruction where the blast is powerful enough to destroy even the strongest reinforced structures would extend 1.2 miles from ground zero. 1.2 miles would be absolutely liquidated. This would take in the National Museum of Natural History. If you've ever been there, I've been there. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They would be consumed. They would be, they would be vaporized. How strong would, would the repercussions be? Uh, such a blast, 475 kiloton. It would be such that if you were 30 miles away, you would feel like a thump on your chest. When you're at a firework display and those great big ones go off, boom, and you feel it, you would feel it 30 miles away from this explosion. The resultant radiation fallout would last for years and take an awful, inconceivable toll. That's just one of them. Now, here's, here's John. He's a first-century man looking at 21st-century realities. And he's looking at this, and, 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 and he's about 90. And what he sees, he's seeing like he is watching a movie in a theater. It is a vivid vision. It is in technicolor. And he's horrified at what he sees. He's got to be. He's a human being. And he's saying, wow, how can I describe this? It's like this or like that, as this, as that. Um, I can only tell you what I see. And I know for a fact it was a third, a third, a third of the whole planet Now, granted, it might also be the description of a giant meteor or a comet streaking across the sky and plunging into the ocean. It could be that very easily. Recent scientific speculations and calculations have pointed out the danger of an asteroid or a comet colliding with the earth, causing incredible catastrophes. Let me give you, for instance, in 1991... There was a considerable concern among astronomers about an asteroid that came within a million miles of Earth. And you say, wow, a million miles, whew, I feel okay about that. Ah, but watch this. If the Earth's gravity had captured it, it would have fallen to Earth and decimated the planet. You know why that doesn't happen? Because God doesn't let it happen. Because it says in Colossians that the very elements are held together by the word of Jesus. God's not going to let that happen. God is going to do it his way. So with this second trumpet, get this, one-third of the sea becomes blood. Can you imagine that? A third of sea life is killed. That hurts me. A third of the ships at sea are destroyed. This is a heartbreaking scenario in store for our planet, but folks, we're not near done yet. The third trumpet, 
the third angel steps up. And John watches as he puts the trumpet to his mouth and blows. Verse 10, chapter 8. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on, here's thirds again, one-third of the rivers, and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood, and Wormwood means bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Now catch this, when the third angel sounds, another great star. Here we got another, something else coming out of the sky, burning like a torch. It falls upon the earth, and this is the second comet-like object to strike and contaminate the waters, and John makes it clear that this time it's really going to matter to human beings because it is the springs or the fresh water sources needed for drinking are struck. And so there's no more fresh water to drink. It's contaminated. It's radiated. Once again, I want to keep in mind, he's a first century man seeing 21st century things. He's trying to describe all this. And that great star falling from the sky that John saw could be anything. But since he called it wormwood, meaning bitter. One again wonders about radioactivity from a nuclear exchange, don't you? You can't get away from it. We know about it. I don't know, but it could be. People would die indeed from drinking radioactive water. You know what's interesting to me? A lot of the games that are out there that kids are playing, video games, they're all about something like this. One of them is called um, Fallout, and and, and the the whole thing is a post-apocalyptic world where the water is radiated and everything's radiated and you're having to walk around in hazmat suits. It's almost like the, the, the science fiction writers and the, the fantasy writers are already grasping the possibility without knowing the book of Revelation that this is where our world is headed. Because man has never created a weapon he did not use. We're not done. The fourth trumpet. The third angel steps back. The fourth angel steps forward, puts the trumpet to his mouth. And it says in verse 12, Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon. Look at these thirds again. One-third of the sun, one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars. And they became dark, and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. More than likely, I think what's going on here is because of the burning trees and the burning grass, along with all the ash and all the dust from all this that's happening on earth, all these horrific explosions, the light of the sun and the light of the moon are, is diminished by one-third. Keep in mind that it took the ash from Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980 around 10 years to leave the atmosphere. So the fourth trumpet completes the effect of the ecolo- or on the ecology. Land, water, and air have all been struck. Now, I told you this is going to be somber. I wish you could see your faces like I am right now. I want you to say to me, thank God I'm saved. And thank God you can still be saved right now. 
<laughs> Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord that he's in charge, can we? Father, we just thank you that you're in charge of the world and the future, and you're a God of mercy, and you prefer mercy over judgment. And we thank you and we give you praise, Lord, that you're the master of the universe, that you're in charge, that history will end at the feet of Jesus and nowhere else. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now give him a hand of praise and shake yourself a little bit. Now we're not praising him because all this is coming. We're praising him that he's with us when all this is coming. Unbelievably, these calamities and distresses coming upon a planet embroiled in wicked wars led by the coming Antichrist are merely the preludes of even more intense woes. Chapter 8 is about to end, and it ends ominously. John sees worse coming on the way. Look at verse 13, and let's read about the end of chapter 8. John says, Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Notice he says he heard it, but he didn't see it. And what did it say? Terror, terror, terror. Now, if you've got a King James, that's woe, woe. Woe to all who belong to this world. That means this world system having rejected Christ and the mercy of God. Because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. So we know whatever the three angels are going to do when they blow those trumpets, it is not good. It is going to be severe. Now let's begin chapter 5 in your book. And it's, chat, it's called Demonic Terrors. Now, before we look at these last trumpets being blown, I want to talk about God's judgment once again for just a moment because we need to understand, folks, judgment from the Bible's perspective. We live in a politically correct culture, and that PC culture we live in cannot conceptualize that Jesus Christ, who walked around blessing people, healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead, doing good things, that he could possibly bring judgments like this. We stumble over that. You know why? Because our society does not understand consequences. We think everything ought to be free, and you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. You do your thing, I'll do mine. I'll tolerate you if you tolerate me. I'm not going to judge you, and you don't judge me. And we have tried to insulate ourselves from being in a society where there is any judgment at all. And that's why Christians are being persecuted, because Christians who are walking in God and walking in the Spirit and walking in the Word call a spade a spade, call sin sin. And our culture doesn't like that. Shut your mouth. Don't you talk to me about sin. And so we're hated more and more and more because we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And when you walk with Christ, you remind people of their sin. They, they, they become sin aware. Haven't you ever seen people who were really walking in darkness and they knew you walked in the light and you came walking in the room? Haven't you seen them look for the nearest exit door? Because they don't want to hear it. And that's what's going on in our culture right now, in the Western culture. Uh, anybody who judges is wrong. But Jesus judges and God judges. The judgment of God is not a popular subject. Great majority of people abhor the thought that the God of love could also be 
the God of wrath. But you can't read the Bible without seeing the judgment of God. It is from Genesis to Revelation. You cannot read the Bible without constantly encountering the judgments of God. What do you think is going on with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets? They're all predicting judgment if people don't repent. In Genesis, God judged Adam and Eve, and he doled out consequences for sin. He judged the whole world of Noah's day with the great flood. The book of Jude tells us that God judged the angels that rebelled, Satan, And the angels that followed him were judged, and that's why they're demons now. They have been reserved in chains of darkness, Jude says. And he judged the people of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. He even judged his own people who rebelled in the wilderness. In the book of Leviticus, let me give you an example. God gives us four main reasons. You might want to write this down. Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 25. God lists four main causes that bring his judgment upon a nation. You know what they are? (laughs) They are adultery, murder of children. (gasps) Imagine that. Murder of children. Homosexuality. I'm just reading the Bible. And bestiality. Three of those four things are sexual in nature, and God calls them perversion. I'm just reading the Bible. He says in Leviticus 18, 24 to 25, to the children of Israel, do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, adultery, murder of children, homosexuality, and bestiality. For the land is defiled. Therefore, listen to what he says, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it. And the land vomits out its inhabitants. You know that you can sin so greatly in a geographical location, in other words, a country, a nation can go into such deep sin that God said the very land itself wants to puke you out. It's almost, I don't mean to be gross, but it's almost a picture of projectile vomiting. You can get to a place in iniquity, in a nation, where even the land wants to vomit you out. And it does vomit you out. Strong language. That's straight from God. The prophet Jeremiah repeatedly warned Judah to repent of these things. God speaking through him saying, quote, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? This is way back in the Old Testament. Now I bring this out to show that God's a God of mercy, but he's also a God who judges unrepentant people and nations. He always has and he always will. And the revelation reveals just that, a totally unrepentant world. We find people in the book of Revelation refusing to repent in spite of all these judgments falling where it's obviously God. A.W. Tozer writes, God's first concern for his universe is its moral health. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. In the Revelation, Jesus is himself the appointed judge of all mankind. He said in John's Gospel, listen to the words of Jesus, Moreover, he said, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So you know who's overseeing all of these judgments? 
the one who saved you. Who'd have thunk it? Right? The, the one who filled you with love, the one who redeemed you from the curse, the one who died on a cross for you, the one that rose from the dead, the one that did so many powerful, wonderful things for so many people, the lover of our soul, the captain of our salvation, the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the one overseeing all these judgments. God judges in order to put a restraint on evil. If he did not bring judgment on sin, the world would collapse into chaos. But I want you to know tonight, the Lord prefers mercy to judgment. He's compassionate and he's long-suffering. How many of you can say, I would have done away with me and he hasn't yet? How many of you are glad his suffering is long? Okay. He says, it says in the Bible, He's not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. So that's the heart of God. But it reaches a place where, folks, he must judge. He must judge to preserve his creation. Because judgment is often delayed in time, many people assume that he's never going to judge us. We think, well, I've been living in this kind of sin for years now. Nothing has happened to me. Ah, you are mistaking the long-suffering of God for a God who doesn't care what you do. But when he does move in judgment, dear church, he is thorough and he's even ruthless as we see in the Revelation. Now, with that in mind, we come to the ninth chapter in Revelation, verse 1, and the fifth trumpet. Here we go. Everybody ready? Say, I'm ready. ready. The fifth angel steps forward and sounds his trumpet. And he says, I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Now, two things about this star. First, it's a star, notice with me, it's already fallen. He didn't see it falling. He said, I saw a star that had already fallen. The language places this star in the masculine gender. Asteros, O-S in Greek is the masculine ending. And so it's not an it that he sees. Not, it's not a, a, a neuter star falling, but, it, but it's a he. And John goes on to say in verses 1 and 2, the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Now listen carefully to me. Obviously, this star, being a he, is Satan himself. Think with me a minute. When we first encounter the devil, where do we see him? He's in the book of Genesis, and he's already fallen. He's already judged. He's already a disembodied spirit. He's already lost his archangel glory, and he is slithering up to Eve craftily and slyly to seduce her into sin. Jesus said, talking about before he was incarnated, Somewhere back in eternity past, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's talking about the judgment Satan experienced when he rebelled. Now, having been given the key to the bottomless pit, look what Satan does. He opens it. Now, we're about to get a picture of hell. All these people who go around saying, I don't care about getting saved. 
I'm going to live like the devil my whole life, and when I go to hell, I have my buddies down there. We'll just have a good old time. Oh, you fool. You fool. You're not going to know your buddies down there. There's not going to be any bars down there. There's not going to be any reminiscing about the good old days in hell. You want to know what hell is like? We're about to read it. Here's Satan given a key. He's given a key to the bottomless pit, and he opens it. And the bottomless pit is the abode of demons, according to Luke 8, 31. It says in that verse, the demons kept begging Jesus, don't send us to the bottomless pit. Even demons don't want to go there. And you want to go down there with your buddies? (laughs) Please. If demons don't even want to go, I assure you, you don't want to go. Please, Jesus, don't send us to the bottomless pit. Revelation 11, 7 says, Antichrist, the beast, also comes out of the bottomless pit. You want to know where Antichrist comes from? The bottomless pit. It reads, when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them. So the opening verse of chapter 9 presents Satan as having the key to the pit of the abyss with power to release those who are confined there. And look what comes out of that pit. Look at what is confined there. Revelations 9, 3, 5 describes locust-looking creatures. Look what came out of hell, out of the smoke. Locusts came down upon the earth, and they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told, don't harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Anybody that didn't have that seal that the 144,000 got is a target for these creatures. They were not given power to kill people, but only to torture them. For five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now, I've not been stung by a scorpion, but I have been stung by a hornet. And I want to tell you, that's an experience you don't forget. It is pain. It is searing, fiery, freak you out pain. But this is like a scorpion when it strikes a man. As soon as the mouth of the awful pit is open, a thick blackness issues from it like the black smoke of a great furnace. And you're going to get with your friends there? You can't even see down there. It's black smoke. This blackness fills the air and obscures the sun. John sees it. And look what comes out of the smoky blackness, like a Steven Spielberg movie, emerge creatures never before seen on earth. This is a first-time visitation. Horrible in shape, evil in character, and armed with power to torment men's bodies without killing them. Verse 6 informs us, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. They will try to end themselves and they won't be able to. This is judgment, folks, not mercy. The description of the locusts is bizarre. Look at what John, how he describes them. 
The locusts looked like horses. Here he goes, like or as. They were like. They reminded me of this kind of thing. They looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore a breastplate made of iron, and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions, and for five months, they had the power to torment people. Now, the symbology in John's description is very striking. And again, to to understand it, we're going to get our interpretation of what these creatures represent from the rest of the Bible, because the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. So, When you read about locusts in the Bible, they're always bad news. People were in dread fear of them because these people were agrarian. They were farmers. And they would work all year on a crop, and suddenly their biggest fear was seeing that black cloud of locusts flying in mass towards their field because they would land by the hundreds of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands more. They would land. They would cover the entire crop. And when they flew away, there was nothing left. So locusts were unrelenting. They were destructive and they were ruinous. And John said that's what these creatures were like. He says they looked like horses. In the Bible, horses are strong, powerful. They are fearful in combat. Crowns of gold were on their heads. That speaks of attraction, possessing authority, which is the symbology of crowns. They are the faces of man. That means they're intelligent. They are willful beings. They think. They strategize. They, they, they calculate. Hair of women means they're attractive, disarming. Teeth of a lion, meaning they overpower and they destroy. You are torn to shreds quickly. Breastplates of iron, that speaks of indestructible. The breastplates of iron in the ancient world were considered to be the best piece of defensive equipment. This indicates that they cannot be defeated. And the only defense against them is fellowship with the Lord. Sound of chariots. He said that's what they look like visually. But here's what they sound like, frightening, overpowering. The noise going into battle is awesome. It paralyzes their victims with fear before the attack is made. And then that tail, tails of scorpions, stinging, inflicting massive painful torment, but it can't kill you. Now, if <laughs> it's hard to believe this is in the Bible, isn't it? But it is. Now, John is sitting there. Folks, let's remember, 90 years old, here here he sits, and this vision is passing before his eyes. He sees these creatures, and he sees them coming upon a Christ-rejecting end-time world. He calls them locusts, but they're not really locusts. That's a metaphor. They are supernatural. Unlike the former plagues that decimate the earth's ecology, these diabolical creatures only afflict men. Now, I've, I've read a lot of theory on what these locusts are. Uh, uh, there's some really good teachers who believe that this is talking about um, 
um, military weaponry, uh, military war machines, military militarized helicopters. So you got the sound and you got the, the weird look and the tail, you know, the, the, the spinning prop at the end and all that. But no, we can't go there because the Bible tells us this is not something man-made. This is straight out of hell. These are demons. So let's don't call them something the Bible doesn't. They are supernatural. Verse 11 goes on to say, their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. That ought to settle it right there. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Apollyon in the Greek means the exterminator. Abaddon means destruction. That's the name of their king. Now, who does that sound like to you? Satan came but for to kill, steal, and destroy. And so these locust-like demonic creatures begin to wreak havoc on mankind, delivering mind-numbing pain and woe. Now, as horrible as this is, it's still not over. Revelations 9:12 says, "One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter." And the two more woes are the last two trumpets. Now, I know I've given you a lot tonight. I think if I didn't went in any more, you'd all be on your knees weeping and crying out to God. <laughs> but I want to leave this thought with you. Say, Jeff, this just sounds like something out of a fantasy book. It's not. It's the Word of God. Jesus himself is giving this to John. And it is Jesus himself, as I've already said, who is overseeing the dispensing of all of these judgments. So here's what we can conclude tonight. One, don't reject grace while it's there. Two, judgment is truly horrific, especially this end-time judgment. Third, there is a high price to pay for holding your fist up against God and saying, I'm going my own way. Fourth, and finally, we do live in a world of consequences. This is a world of consequences. And Jesus said, God so loved the world. He doesn't hate the world. He so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him would not what? Perish. But have everlasting life. The perishing we're seeing right here. And it's a place you don't want to be. It's an experience you never, ever want to have. Now I want to leave you with one last thing. Doesn't this make you want to go out and tell people about Jesus? Because of what's coming? That's why, hey, bring a bunch of people Sunday night to Greg Laurie. Let's, as a church, win as many as we can. Because there's only one way out of this. And it's the blood of the Lamb. The cross of Christ. The grace of God is manifested in Jesus Christ. So let's stand together, can we? And next time we're going to talk about the end-time river, the end-time army, and an end-time building. And it's going to be good. We lift our hands up towards Him. Father, we thank You for the mercy of God. Lord, we thank You that 
you're extending mercy. You're long-suffering. The Lord, you're long-suffering this very night. You haven't brought things to a close. You've extended your grace. The porch light is still on. The welcome sign is still there on the door of heaven. And Lord, thank you for the grace and the mercy of God. Now, Lord, as we read these things, study these things, and mull over these things, we see that, Lord, our world is headed to a very, very rough place. So all we can pray, Lord, is let Turning Point be a light. Open as many doors as we can possibly walk through. And, Lord, we say to you, we will not back down from declaring the only begotten Son of God, the blood of the Lamb, the cross of Christ, the one-wayness of Jesus. For, Lord, He is the ark of the new covenant. And, Lord, we thank you for this. Now, can you just breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, let me play a part in reaching people for Jesus in these end times. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And he said, you know, Jeff, if this is what it's going to be every week, I don't know if I want to come get depressed. Let me tell you something. It gets so good as we get into the last chapters because it shows us that all of this is the darkness before the dawn, and there's a whole new world coming, and it's going to be glorious. Amen? Amen. Lions going to lay down with the lamb. Children are going to play in snake dens. No more carnivorous activity. No more need for sun or moon for light. Healed totally forever. I believe thinking and you're there. None of this. All these angel wings. Thinking and you're there. So hang on, it's going to get better.